Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, this morning we have a special treat. Uh, Ron Young will be preaching to us this morning. Ron is an elder here at Jacobswell Church. He is also headmaster at Providence Academy. Uh, If you know Ron, you know that he is a very brilliant man. But what I love most about Ron is that Ron loves Jesus with all his heart. And so, Ron, thank you for coming and giving God's word to us this morning. Is that on? Hey, there we go. Thank you, Dan. Well, I I consider it a great honor to be able to come and uh, preach uh, this morning. Uh, And before I do, I just want to give, I want to say thank you on behalf of my family. Um, It's been an odd year with uh, brain surgeries and radiation treatments and all that stuff on my wife. And because of your prayers, um, meals, and and lots of help, it it made it... uh, yeah, not so bad. So, so thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, many of you know that I'm from the great state of California. You can boo. It's all right. When I was just before I turned four, uh, my parents moved from San Jose, California, Southern Bay, up to Vallejo, California, which is North Bay. Um, I remember having my fourth birthday with a lot of kids I really didn't know. Um, I was not yet in school. My older brother was in school. And something I was unaware of, probably because I wasn't at school and my parents were good parents and sheltered me from such things, but my older brother knew is that the Zodiac Killer was around. If you ever heard of the mass murderer, the Zodiac Killer? Um, He uh, actually, they found a place where he camped out uh, not that far from uh, where I lived. Um, so my, my brother, uh, hearing all the stories, uh, delighted in trying to scare me to talk about uh, the Zodiac Killer coming to get us. Um, Halloween was actually shut down one year uh, because of a letter that was found, uh, thinking it might be the Zodiac Killer. And we'd go to different places. When you go to the beach, you'd go to Lake Berryasso. That's one of the places where you attack someone. And my brother would try to say that the ghosts of the, the victims were, uh, were haunting the area. And our favorite park to go after church on Sunday was uh, Blue Rock Springs. It was a great playground with this huge rocket, you know, that I love to play in. And his Zodiac Killer's first victims were at that park. And so my brother would always make noises and, hey, what was that? And try to get me to think that these ghosts were haunting. It was a, it was a reality. I was, it was scary, right? Um. And then one Sunday morning, and I don't know how old I was, but I was fairly young. I remember us hearing the doxology. We sang every Sunday after the offering, we'd sing the doxology. And at the end, you know, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And I, I kind of freaked out. Like, there's a, there's a Holy Ghost around. 
And uh, I couldn't, I, all I knew is I didn't want the Holy Ghost around. And in my mind, I was thinking, you know, and again, I don't remember how old I was, but in my mind, it was like, okay, you know, Jesus came and died on the cross, and then he was bodily raised, and then, and then he ascended to heaven, and evidently his ghost was still around haunting us. And, uh, and I felt like um, it was really weird. And, and in my mind, again, as a really young child, I thought what I needed to do is I needed to be a good kid or the Holy Ghost was going to come after me, you know. But evidently he was like Casper, you know, friendly, <laughs> friendly ghost. I don't know. But there was a lot of confusion. I grew up in a church that talked a lot about God the Father and a lot, mostly, about Jesus the Son. And yet rarely do I remember hearing any sermons on the Holy Spirit. And uh, I got, um, after I got out of high school and went on to college, I had um, kind of had a period of, uh, you might say backsliding is a, is a kind way to put it. I was not a good person. <laughs> and, um, and halfway through my junior year, I, I had a, a, a real conversion. And so when I left high school, by the time I left high school, I was very zealous for the Lord. And I got to college and some of the guys I met in my dorm were Pentecostal. And uh, they, they kept saying, hey, you've got, you got to experience the Holy Spirit. You've got, you got to come. And they invited me to these revival meetings. And I remember thinking in my, my mind, I, I'd never heard of this. And, and if there's something going on that God wants for me, I want it. So I, I came. I wanted to go and experience the Holy Spirit. I wanted to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I want to speak in tongues. I wanted whatever God had for me. And I recall going there and um, loving the worship. It was, this is the 1980s, so it's like when praise music was getting its <laughs> going. But it was, you know, it was mostly Calvary Chapel and Vineyard songs, and they were basically scripture put to music. And I loved singing them. It, 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 was, it, was, it was great. So t- two things that I learned from this experience is one is um, I loved going and, and singing these praise songs with, with my, my friends and all these people that I knew. And uh, in the spring, I had allergies, so I took a Sudafed, or an antihistamine of some sort. And so I showed up to church with kind of medicine head, and I, I'm, I'm praising the Lord in the same song, same everything, but evidently the Holy Spirit wasn't there anymore. I, I'm being facetious. I, I couldn't feel anything. I had medicine head. And it dawned on me that, one, is that the feeling I had when I was singing songs was a feeling that I had when I sang songs. It wasn't the Holy Spirit. In other words, antihistamine is not going to prevent the Holy Spirit from being there. The Holy Spirit was there. I just didn't have any sensation as I was singing a song. I had mistaken the experience I had in that worship with the Holy Spirit. The second thing was is that um, I kept coming forward for all sorts of things to be able to, you know, the pastor kept trying to get me to speak in tongues and Finally, one day, they decide they're going to have a special service for me, and, you know, they're going to lay hands on me again for the fourth time, and, and, uh, and he started trying to tell me how to do it. You know, you got to loosen up, and thuppada, thuppada, or something like that. And, uh, and I got up, and I left. You know, it's the same thing. If the Holy Spirit wants me to, if God wants me to speak in tongues, I'm going to speak in tongues, and there's nothing anyone can do to stop it, right? I, it, it, was a, it was an odd thing. And so I, I left and I remained friends with, my, um, with these guys who, who were there. They were very sincere believers. I, I loved them to death. They were great. 
Um, but I, but it was, it, what I saw was just more confusion. Um, today I want to talk about, um, I want to share a little bit about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and, and focus in on what the Holy Spirit's role is in sanctification. So that's my, I'm limiting kind of my, my scope to that. What, a little bit of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and then focus in um, on the role of sanctification. My text today is from uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. You can see in the bulletin uh, where it's at in the Red Bible um, and the Children's Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a little bit about the context of what Isaiah is saying here. Isaiah is prophesying in a time where the nation of Assyria is being used by God to judge his people. Um, they, they're coming uh, because Israel had forsaken God and committed idolatry and had refused to, uh, to repent. And so in uh, Isaiah chapter 10, uh, Assyria is called God's uh, rod of uh, wrath, you know, and that, that Assyria is going to come and, and make these judgments but Assyria is also very proud, and God also predicts or prophesies that um, Assyria is going to be destroyed. In, in fact, in chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, uh, we read this. And he, God, will destroy the glory of his forest. This is kind of a metaphor for the armies of Assyria. And of his fruitful garden, both soul and body, and it will be as when a, stick man, a sick man wastes away. And the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. So what we see is, is that Assyria, this army who was coming to judge Israel, um, was vast and he compared to a forest. But God says, after the work that Assyria is to be done on God's behalf, God's going to mow them down. They're going to wither away. They're going to die off. There's, there's only going to be a few trees left so that a small child can count how many trees are left. That's the destiny of Assyria. Meanwhile, Israel, who has been uh, judged by God, uh, the Davidic kingdom is, is uh, not doing so hot. It's compared to a stump. But the future of Assyria is this death and destruction. The future of God's people is bright. Because from this stump, God is going to bring forth a, a root, a, I mean a shoot, a branch that's going to bear fruit. So Assyria, at the time, it looks pretty bad for Israel. But in the future, Assyria is going to be 
uh, taken care of and Israel will bear fruit through this branch. And, it, and a couple things that we realize. One is, is that Jesus, of course, is the shoot. Jesus is the Messiah, the, the promised one to come um, to deliver God's people. And you also notice that in verse 1 there that, that um, Isaiah doesn't say the stump of David. He doesn't say that uh, it's the stump of David that the Messiah is going to come. He says the stump of Jesse. If you remember Jesse from the Bible, David's dad, he was a, a shepherd. And all his sons kept the sheep. You know, when there was an important event, all of them went somewhere that, that, to anoint David. David was left with all the sheep. They didn't know it was David that was going to get anointed. They were shepherds. They, they came from obscurity. And what Isaiah is saying is that the future Messiah, the one who's going to bring deliverance for God's people, is also, he's going to be like this. He's going to be from David's line, but he's not going to show up as like this king of glory. He's going to come in obscurity, which of course Jesus did, not as a king, but as a son of a carpenter. Verse 2 starts out, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and as the, Isaiah's audience would hear this, they would think of all the past heroes of the Bible, right? The prophets, the kings, the judges, bad things are going on, and what would happen? The Spirit of the Lord would come upon them, and God would do some amazing things. The Spirit would come upon Elijah, and the prophets of Baal would be defeated. Or, you know, Samson would... would would be in a, a dire straits and God's spirit would come on, on, um, on, on uh, Samson and he'd wipe out the Philistines. But notice this one thing. It says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In the Old Testament, every time the hero would receive the spirit, the spirit would come upon him but eventually leave. God would send the spirit for a particular task and then it would be gone. But here it says that the, the Messiah, this king that's going to come to deliver its people, the Holy Spirit was going to rest on him. It was going to remain. That's another way of translating it. It shall remain upon him. And so Jesus, when he came in obscurity, born of a virgin, is, we understand it from Dan's past preaching here, is that Jesus is divine, the divine son of God, but he's also a human Right? He's both divine and human. And while he was on earth in his ministry, he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives and operated, in a sense, as a man under the power of the Holy Spirit. And we read here what that spirit is. It's a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, and a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The, um, the other part to it is that we understand is that that same spirit that came upon the Lord, the Holy Spirit, and rested on him is the same spirit that rests in us. When, when God calls his elect to himself, the Holy Spirit comes in us and remains in us. The same spirit. So the church, from very early on up until, you know, a hundred years ago or so, when it would talk about the spirit and what its gifts are or its graces are, 
they would use this list here from Isaiah chapter 11. So these gifts or graces of the Holy Spirit are the, are the ones that are in us. Sanctifying us to be conformed to the image of the Son. So, God made promises regarding his Messiah, who will deliver his people. When Jesus did arrive on the scene, hundreds of years later, the people missed that this Messiah who came to deliver his people wasn't there just to deliver them politically. Jesus wasn't coming to deliver Israel from Rome. His he was there to save his people from nothing short of the power of sin, Satan, and death itself. And it is a promise of the reversal of the fall and the restoration of the glory of God, the glory God intended for man made in his image. Does that make sense? The deliverer is delivering us from all that's wrong. From sin, from Satan, from death itself, and his purpose then is to renew the image of God in us. When God made Adam and Eve and there was no sin in the world, they were the perfect image and likeness of God. But since sin came into the world, our image and likeness of him has been twisted. So when Adam and Eve were alive and, and uh, without sin, the, the activities that Adam and Eve would do would be things that would glorify God. That is, their relationships with each other, the work of their hands, all the things that they did would be things that would imitate or um, display the distinctive excellence of God. With sin, our activities tend to glorify ourselves. And, and what happens is, Typically, we just make a mess of things. And especially when you got billions of people all trying to do things to glorify themselves, it makes it really bad. So God had promised from the very get-go that he was going to deliver us from Satan. Right after the fall, he says, he's gonna, uh, a seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. So there's going to be deliverance eventually from sin. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the, the glimpses of how it's talked about. We're going to get a new heart, right? There's going to be a new, new covenant. We're going to have a, a desire to do the, the right things. It's all a prediction of the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon us and renew us. So this process of restoration that we might be like God, conformed to the image of God, or a better way to say it is being conformed to the image of Jesus, since he's the perfect image of God, is called sanctification. And because we're Presbyterian, I thought we should go to the large catechism. I think it's question 75. There we go. Let's go over it real quick. Well, it's not going to be quick. Let me read it and I'll translate it into... into I, I will say once we get to 77, I, 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 which is the other one we'll do, is uh, I'm glad we don't talk like this anymore. All right. Sanctification is a work of God's grace 
whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation of his spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them. All right, let's just stop there for just a second. We've talked about how how is it that sin and death and hell can be eradicated? How can that be conquered? Well, it required God to become a human being and stand as a substitute for sinful humanity. So God became flesh, became a man, and died so that the wrath of God and the penalty of sin would be taken care of on the cross. So Jesus died, and he was raised to new life, proving that his life and death was an accepted sacrifice for us. But now the question is, how does that work? How does, it, how does God's son's sacrifice, how does that make me somehow okay with God? Well, what God did was he sent his Holy Spirit into us so that through that Spirit we might be united with Jesus Christ, right? So remember, the same Spirit that was at operation in Jesus is the Spirit in us. So we're united to Christ through that so that when God sees us, he sees Christ's righteousness, not yours, right? The Bible calls our righteousness filthy rags. He sees Christ's righteousness. So then he continues, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, here we go, renewed in their whole man after the image of God. Renewed in their whole man after the image of God. In other words, the Spirit's work in us is not just that, the, that, that we are, um, I guess, morally right. That's what I always thought sanctification meant when I was younger. But it's that it's renewing us to, to be like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of God. Having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts, and those graces are so stirred up, increased, and strengthened, as that they more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. So when I was growing up in this church that didn't talk much about the Holy Spirit, also talked a lot about holiness. It's interesting. And, and the idea is that the goal is, is that God is going to make you holy, but in that teaching it was uh, this idea of moral perfection. It, it was taught that a Christian could through, in this life, become, uh, to, to, to have Christian perfection. In other words, not ever consciously sin. And, and to be honest with you, it's very easy to do. Let, let me tell you, I've got a couple eye, raised eyebrows there. Let me tell you how to do it. Okay, ready? Find a group of professing believers who are like you, who love the same things and don't do the uh, obvious sins that you don't like either and then hang out together all the time. 
So then what happens is I can fulfill the idea of loving my neighbor as myself because my neighbor is just like me. Right? And then because we like each other so much, I'm really not, uh, everything's always pretty much fine. And then I can go on my merry life thinking that I'm a pretty good person. Right? But that's not like being like Jesus. Right? That's, that's being uh, secluded into a holy huddle, a little cocoon, right? It, it doesn't work. It's, that's like a lie from the pit of hell. It, if we were really to be like Jesus, that means we're going to try to love people even like our enemies, which means you have to at least have enough experience in the world to have enemies, right? And the, and the people that show that I need to be sanctified are not my close friends, it's the people that really piss me off. Right? Maybe it's just me. But when the people that really tick me off are the ones I'm called to love, it shows me how horrible I am at doing that. It shows me my need for God's grace in my life. It shows me my need for the Spirit. That I might repent and die more unto sin. And rise unto newness of life. Question 77. All right, you'll notice I'm, I'm skipping question 76. Your homework is to go look it up when you get home. I'm just kidding. It's about repentance unto life, and that really doesn't matter. So just, <laughs> I'm teasing. See, Pastor Dan is not in the room, so I can, you know. Now, question 77. What, wherein do justification and sanctification differ? So this question is, how are justification and sanctification, how are they different? Although sanctification is be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ. Let me talk about what that means. There is no one on the planet who can be sanctified without first being justified. Let me say that again. No, we can't be sanctified without first being justified because being justified means you have the Holy Spirit in you Right? And so you can't be sanctified. This is, we had a whole reformation and a big to-do about this whole thing. It, it, the heresy of it would say that you have to be sanctified a particular amount, you have to be good enough, and then God will justify you. That, my friends, is called not in the Bible. <laughs> it is not in the Bible. There's no thing, nothing that we can do to make us right with God. God does it. It's a grace, right? But sanctification is connected to it because the Holy Spirit that justifies us by making us united with Christ is the one that sanctifies us. So here's how they differ. In that God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ, okay? So in justification, I know Dan preached about this not too long ago. In justification, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you as if that righteousness is yours. Christ lived a sinless, obedient life, perfect. And so when God the Father looks at you as a believer who's been united to Christ via the Holy Spirit, he sees Christ's perfection. And you are justified on that basis. You're justified on that basis. So it's imputed to us. 
Sanctification, in sanctification of his spirit, infuses grace and enables to the exercise thereof. Ugh. Don't you love that language? So, so justification is God imputing Christ's righteousness to us. In sanctification, the spirit who dwells in us uh, infuses grace. It infuses grace. Okay? And enables us to exercise those graces. And we'll talk about those graces in just a moment. In the former, that is in justification, sin is pardoned. In the other, sanctification, sin is subdued. The one, justification, does equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God and that perfectly in this life that they never fall into condemnation. Justification then makes us all equal. Right? I, I mistake, because I, I, I was on a serial killer kick here, um, I talked about Jeffrey Dahmer last service, and um, no, no, I said Ted Bundy, but I meant Jeffrey Dahmer. So Jeffrey Dahmer, fellow Wisconsinite, I can't escape serial killers, I guess. I moved to Wisconsin, and here they are. <laughs> so Jeffrey Dahmer, here's a guy who killed a lot of people and even ate them, right? Mass murderer um, and a uh, uh, cannibal. He came to know the Lord before the end of his life. So Jeffrey Dahmer and I are brothers in Christ. And he is righteous. And when God looks at him, he sees his own son. And he's been saved to the glory of Jesus. But listen to this. The other, that is sanctification, is neither equal in all, nor in this life perfect in any, but growing up into perfection. So, Jeffrey Dahmer and I, we're brothers in Christ. He is saved. He's been justified. But let's just say our sanctification might be a little different. That brings up a great question of what do you expect in a church? Right? If, if, if our justification is immediate, by the Holy Spirit coming into us and we're all right with him because of that spirit. But sanctification is a process that's not necessarily equal in all and it never comes to perfection until the end. Wouldn't you expect that our church is going to be a mess? There'll be sin. Right? There'll be sin amongst the staff. There'll be sin amongst the pastors. There'll be sin amongst the congregation. There'll be sin amongst, we'll try things and we'll blow it and we'll say wrong things. I, I think I said Christ's sinful life last service. It's not, you know, it's not good. <laughs> right? But, but we are all, as brothers and sisters of Christ, who have been justified by the grace of God, in this together, being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, but it's at different rates at different times and different speeds. And I don't know why God chooses to do this, but it's true. I'm very jealous of people who have these dramatic conversion experiences. It seems like they're sanctified to the nth degree, 
when I've been a Christian for a long time and still struggle with things. But it's not my job to judge other people because of that. It's my job to encourage us. Right? And to be thankful for that, for God's work. So these sanctifying graces that the Spirit gives. We, we see this from, the, from Scripture, from chapter 2. The, um, the, the, the church, uh, again, would talk about the graces or the gifts of the Spirit as being um, these six, sometimes seven. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear in the Lord. And, and it's interesting, you could divide these then into these three things of Christ sanctifying our mind, Christ sanctifying our will, and Christ sanctifying our spirit. So let's look at wisdom and understanding. Wisdom pertains to knowing or choosing between good and evil and discerning the greater of the good. Okay? It, knowing good and evil and discerning the greater of the good. So an example, Jesus is uh, in a synagogue on a Sabbath day. Not supposed to do work on the Sabbath day. Here's a guy with a withered hand. What's Jesus going to do? Everyone wants to know. Jesus knew the greater good. He healed the man's withered hand. Why is he able to do that? Because he knows the law of God. If a donkey or an ox or something falls into a pit on the Sabbath, it is not breaking the Sabbath to get them out to preserve the life of that beast. How much more then would it be okay to heal a man on the Sabbath? Right? This is a man who knows wisdom. He has an understanding, pertains to knowing the will and ways of God in a broader sense. Example is when people are talking to Jesus about the evil Romans or, you know, whatever. And he's talking about loving an enemy, praying for those who persecute you. He reminds them that God causes it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. God intimately knew the ways of God and his will. So this spirit then of, of wisdom and understanding is in us. Let me give you an example. When I was in college, I was a, a RA in a dorm. And a transfer student named Steve was a baseball player, came to me. It was a Thursday. And he was very excited because he just came to Christ. This is a guy who was a complete pagan, if you ever label someone a pagan. On his 16th birthday, he told me how his, his dad gave him a box of condoms and said, have fun, just be safe. That was the expectation, and that's what he did. And on a Thursday, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. On Friday, he went home, and he went to a party. So he comes to me on Monday, and he asked me, hey, Ron, I'm kind of new at this thing, but tell me about sex. And I go, what are you talking about, Steve? He goes, so I'm at this party and there's this girl and I felt I shouldn't do anything. And I said, well, did you? And he goes, no. And I said, you're correct. We're not supposed to, you know, the way God made it was that we're not to be having sex with people we're not married to. And he had never heard that before in his life. Never. He was, he just said he just sensed he had this feeling that he's not supposed to be doing this, and so he didn't. 
This is the spirit working in this guy's life. And of course, then we had to talk about what he was doing at the party and all this other kind of thing. But that came later. We were very excited for his decision. The Gospel of John, 5, chapter 15, 26, talks about when the Helper comes, that is the Spirit whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit will bear witness about Christ continually as we read Scripture, as we study him, as we hear his word, we'll know him more and more. Counsel and might I put with sanctifying the will. Counsel pertains to practical wisdom. It would be very similar to prudence. It's knowing what to do in particular situations and the ability to make plans. Okay? Example, Jesus knew, he knew what he should do all the time. He knew when he should withdraw from the crowd. He knew when he should be in the crowd. He knew when he should go to Jerusalem and when he should refrain. He just knew these things. And he also had might, which carries the idea of strength, courage, and perseverance. Together, it means the ability to make plans and the fortitude to carry them out. So Jesus knew the plan of God was for him to go to Jerusalem in order to die. So not only did he have the knowledge, this spirit of counsel, he had the might to carry out the plan. I had a uh, college student in my church who uh, bought a mobile home up in Mountain while he was in college, and then he got a job and was moving away. He asked me, Pastor, here, and he gave me the deed. He says, could you sell this for me? All right. So I said, sure. I put an ad in the paper, and uh, this guy named Keith uh, called me up and wanted to take a look at it. So I never met this guy. We get in the car and we're driving up to a uh, mountain to sh- look at this, uh, um, this place. Keith finds out I'm a pastor and he starts complaining about the church. He wanted to get married, but his churches won't, no one will marry him. And I said, why? And they said, uh, well, they say I'm living in sin. And because uh, he's living together with his girlfriend. And he's trying to justify it by the fact that he's trying to do what's right. Which I acknowledge is a noble thing, trying to do what's right. But I said, Keith, you're, you are living in sin, right? You, you know that. And he paused for a moment and he said, yeah, I know. I said, why are you so mad at the church? You need to repent. You need to do, really do what's right. In reality... You're, you're not trying to do what's right. You're trying to cover up your sin. So not dealing with the sin, you're just going to get married and then pretend it all, all has gone away. And then his response was, can we not talk about this anymore? I said, sure. We talked about the Packers and other things. We get to the mobile home. We look at it. We're chatting about fishing and such. He decides he wants to buy the mobile home. We get in the car. We're heading back. We're talk, chit-chatting. And he stops and he says, Pastor, can you pray for me? And I said, why? He goes, you're right. I need to do what's right. And this is going to be a hard discussion with my girlfriend. So in the end, he did what was right. It was very difficult, but God gave him a plan and gave him the courage, the the might, to do what needed to be done. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, this is this prudence kind of wisdom, let him ask God. He gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
2 Timothy 1.7 reminds us God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline. Finally, knowledge and the fear of the Lord is sanctifying our spirit. Knowledge has to do with the relationship with God. Not just knowing about God, but knowing, really knowing Him. And the fear of the Lord means a proper posture towards God, one of reverence, one of honor. Taken together, knowledge and the fear of the Lord, it, it means uh, piety. The Holy Spirit draws us to do the things that please God. A man in my church who was uh, one of the leaders was not showing up on Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. Where is this guy? And I talked to him. He says, well, pastor, I, I get, I'm, I'm fishing on Sunday. And uh, I, I said, what are you doing fishing on Sunday? He said, well, you know, I feel close to God when I'm out on the boat. I have a chance to reflect and pray. And uh, it's, it's really beneficial. Now, we talked about it. I know he had some young children. He worked a lot. He didn't have a lot of time. And does this guy need to get out and reflect on things? He absolutely does. But my question to him was, hey, <clears throat> have you ever asked yourself, what is it that pleases God and not what pleases you? And so he thought about it the next Sunday. He was in church. He took that seriously and started to pray about it. Is what I'm doing really pleasing to God or is it just pleasing me? And he began to change his behavior as God was sanctifying and making him more and more like into the image of Christ. So I'm going to conclude with this. Remember when I talked about what sanctification is, there was this last part. It says this. With the Spirit in us, it says, it having the seeds, the seeds, this, these graces that are given to us, the seeds of repentance unto life, and all other saving graces put into our hearts, and those graces so stirred up, increased, and strengthened, as they might, may more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. In other words, the Spirit is in you, and those seeds are in you. These graces, these gifts of the Spirit are in you now. And you might be thinking, well, how come I'm not, am I not growing in Christ? Like, where are you? Are you in need of knowledge and fear? Are you in need of counsel and might? Are you in need of wisdom and understanding? If these seeds are in you now, what's, what's going on? How, how are these things stirred in us? How do these things then um, make us more and more to die unto ourself and rise unto newness of life? Well, God has given us the ordinary means of grace to do such things. Avail yourself to these ordinary means. Prayer. Reading the scripture. Hearing the hearing the, the uh, word of God proclaimed and preached and come to the table. Come to the table. I would ask that as you do today, just think about this. Where are you? Have you been stagnant? Are you becoming more and more like Christ? Are you being conformed to the image of God? What would your friends say? How have you grown in the last five years, two years, Come to the table and ask that.
His body and blood has been shed for you. His spirit is applying that to you for your spiritual benefit. Ask. Scripture says, Jesus said, if a son were to ask a father for a loaf of bread, he's not going to give his son a rock. How much more will the heavenly father, right? If a, if a sinful man can give a good gift to his son, how much more the heavenly father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And by that I mean the spirit that's within you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your love for us. That you didn't leave us as orphans when your son ascended to heaven, but you've given us your Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, I pray, God, that that spirit that was operating in Christ's life that is in us, Lord, would sanctify us more and more. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of your grace to become more like Jesus. And help us, Lord, to love one another knowing that we're all at different uh, speeds and paces in that uh, conforming. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.